the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Looking forward to a conversation later this hour with retired Washington County Judge Tom Cole. Paid in full. We're going to give a progress report. And also, there's a feature film in the making. You might recall uh, uh, Judge Cole wrote a book about the death of his daughter. She was murdered. And uh, there's a feature film that's being made about that story, primarily about uh, his response to the death of his daughter and the power of forgiveness. So I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more uh, to with him about that. Also, we're going to talk with uh, Tara Matson. She's the author of Courageous, Being uh, Daughters Rooted in Grace. The book is published by uh, Cook. We'll also talk about a conference that's coming up uh, that's... Uh, a unique conference for women, Encourage, that's spelled with an I, Encourage Gathering. Let's talk about it. Uh, the conference is the 13th and 14th of March at Rolling Hills Community Church. Let me encourage you to check out the details because, as I mentioned, it um, has some unique features, and you'll want to know more about that. You can go to EncourageGathering.com. That's I-N-C-O-U-R-A-G-E, I-N, EncourageGathering.com for more details. Again, that's in March, the 13th and 14th. First, to look at some of the headlines, I suppose the, suppose the biggest headline of all is the president was acquitted by the Senate earlier today. And we'll talk in more detail about that in a few moments. But pre- the president went on the offensive against socialism and left wing policies during a defiant third state of the union address before Congress last night, drawing groans from Democrats in attendance and prompting a furious House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to rip up her copy of the president's speech as soon as it concluded in a stunning scene. We'll ask about the moment. Uh, Pelosi said she had destroyed the speech because it was the courteous thing to do, considering the alternatives. She also said she was trying to find one page with truth in it, but couldn't. Well, the White House responded almost immediately as well by referencing several of the guests of honor whom the president had introduced during the State of the Union address. Speaker Pelosi just ripped up one of our last surviving Tuskegee airmen, the survivor Uh, The survival of a child born at 21 weeks, the mourning families of Rocky Jones and Kayla Mueller, a service member's reunion with his family, the White House said in a tweet, that's her legacy. Well, the back and forth continues. The flare up was a harsh reminder of the partisan discord pervading the halls of Congress, even as the president in his speech all but ignored the historic impeachment drama that flanked this year's address. A fight virtually certain to end with the president's acquittal, which it did earlier today at his Senate impeachment trial. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, a key swing vote in the president's impeachment trial, announced yesterday that she would vote to acquit on both articles of impeachment. Mitt Romney, on the other hand, um, announced the opposite. Pete Buttigieg is narrowly leading the Democratic presidential field in the Iowa caucuses. Yes, they've um, 
continued. According to initial returns that the party at last began reporting late Tuesday afternoon following the massive delay linked to technical breakdowns. But Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is close behind the former South Bend, Indiana mayor, with 71 percent of precincts reporting in the first uh, batches released by the embattled state party. Sanders is also ahead of the popular vote with 24 percent of two Buttigieg's, Buttigieg's, kind of an odd way to um, say it, but 21 percent, Elizabeth Warren's 19 percent, and Joe Biden's 15 percent. It was still unclear when the party would release the complete vote, but uh, all expectations are that that will be coming very soon. At least 10 people aboard a cruise ship off Japan have tested positive for the coronavirus, according to a statement uh, last well, earlier today, last night for them from Princess Cruises. The news comes as infectious outside infections rather outside of China continue to increase all 2600 guests and 1045 crew members aboard the Diamond Princess have been quarantined for over a day and are likely to remain for at least 14 days as required by the Ministry of Health, according to the cruise line. The infected passengers include one from the U.S., two from Australia, three from Japan, three from Hong Kong, and one crew member from the Philippines. The president's approval rating, job approval rating, is at its personal best at 49 percent, mirroring what happened during the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And Nevada Democrats have vowed not to use the same app that uh, contributed to Iowa's caucus failure. Sacramento is proposing a homeless shelter near a school. It doesn't go well. And a Virginia Senate has blocked another Northam-backed gun bill. Hong Kong and Taiwan territories that Japan, that China rather see as its own restrict travel from the mainland, giving the coronavirus. And on this day in history, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt proposes increasing the number of U.S. Supreme Court justices. That proposal, which fails in Congress, drew accusations that Roosevelt was attempting to pack the nation's highest court. And in 1971, on this day, Apollo 14 astronauts Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell step onto the surface of the moon in the first of two lunar excursions. 1989, the Soviet Union announces that all but a small rearguard contingent of its troops have left Afghanistan. On this day in history, 1993, President Bill Clinton signs the Family and Medical Leave Act, granting workers up to 12 weeks unpaid leave for family emergencies. And in 2001, four uh, disciples of Osama bin Laden go on trial in New York City in the 1998 bombing of two U.S. embassies in Africa. The four would be convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. And finally, on this day in history, 2002, a federal grand jury in Alexandria, Virginia, indicts John Walker Len on 10 charges, alleging he was trained by Osama bin Laden's terror network and then conspired with the Taliban to kill Americans. Len would later plead guilty to lesser offenses and would be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. That was in 2002. He's got a stretch yet to go. Well, the Senate overwhelmingly acquitted President Trump on both articles of impeachment against him this afternoon, following a brief trial and a historic rejection of the Democrats' claim that the president's Ukraine dealings and handling of congressional subpoenas merited his immediate removal from office. It all started 84 days ago. All Democratic senators supported convicting the president of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, including swing vote moderate Senators Joe Manchin, Kristen um, uh, Sinema of Arizona and Doug Jones of Alabama, all Democrats. The only party defection was on the abuse of power charge from Mitt Romney, 
Republican from Utah who declared hours before the final vote that Trump had engaged in as destructive an attack on the oath of the office and our Constitution, as I can imagine, end quote. Romney voted not guilty on the obstruction charge. But uh, a final vote, 52-48 against conviction on the abuse of power charge and 53-47 on the obstruction charge. The Senate fell far short of the two-thirds majority needed to convict and remove the president. Swing vote Republican senators included Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine and Lamar Alexander of Tennessee all voted to acquit on both counts. The separate obstruction of Congress charge concerned the White House's assertion of executive privilege and refusal to comply with congressional subpoenas. Romney explained he would acquit on the obstruction count, saying House Democrats had chosen not to respond to the president's to the White House's legal argument against the subpoena. After Chief Justice of the U.S. John Roberts formally declared Trump acquitted, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell presented him with the Golden Gavel Award as a thank you for his service. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, Judge Tom Cole will join us to talk about the progress of Paid in Full and a movie that's being made about how he responded after the murder of his daughter, Megan. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Once again, we'll talk with retired judge Tom Cole. He's the founder of Paid in Full. We'll offer a progress report. Very exciting. And there's also a feature film in the making. We'll tell you more about that when he uh, when he joins us there uh, here as well. Senator Mitt Romney told uh, Fox News Chris Wallace Wednesday in an exclusive interview that he had to follow his conscience in deciding to vote to convict President Trump on abuse of power, a decision that's likely to ignite serious blowback from Trump and others in the Republican Party. Now, serious blowback from President Trump, the two of them have uh, been at odds since the uh, the campaign in 2016. So I don't see this necessarily as being much different. But uh, Romney said in that exclusive interview, I believe that the act he took an effort to corrupt an election is a destruction and attack on the oath of office and our Constitution, as I can imagine. Romney said it uh, is a high crime and misdemeanor within the meaning of the Constitution, and that is not a decision I take lightly. It is the last decision I want to take. Well, he later told uh, Wallace, I had to follow my conscience when asked about the likely blowback. I understand there's uh, going to be an enormous consequence, he said, and I don't have a choice in that regard. That's why that's why I haven't been anxious to be in the position I'm in. He's not voting to convict Trump of obstruction of justice and did not, which was one of the two impeachment articles passed by the House of Representatives. He split his vote to convict Trump on the abuse of power article. The former Republican nominee for president also said his deep Mormon faith played a significant role in his decision. When Wallace asked him about Trump's reaction to his comments last year, saying the Mueller report sickened him. Romney said that any political benefit he would gain from voting to acquit the president on abuse of power would not overtake his faith in the oath he took when being sworn in as a senator at the impeachment trial. Yeah, again, I can't let personal considerations, if you will, overwhelm my conscience and overwhelm my oath to God, Romney said. I mean, this is for uh, for me. Well, it's the most difficult decision I've ever made in my life. There's been nothing that compares to this. Well, lost in the shadow of all of this, of course, on Monday, we had the Iowa caucuses. We also had senators uh, commenting on the case that the the closing arguments, I should say, from the House managers and the president's defense team. Then senators had their first opportunity, all 50 of them, 10 minutes each to respond to what they had been listening to in that trial. 
which really began some 84 days ago, um, not in the Senate, but culminating in the Senate, and then the vote that took place today. So you had a big day on Monday, the president speaking in the State of the Union yesterday, and then the vote that was taken today. Well, the State of the Union has never been better, according to Kay Cole James with the Heritage Foundation. She says the president delivered an optimistic vision of America, one that celebrates freedom, builds on our economy, our economic prosperity, and depends, defends our cherished principles. From, from protecting our homeland to honoring American heroes, the president delivered on his promise and is focused on building on his accomplishments. Uh, not surprisingly, because we were told ahead of time, the president did, president did not make reference to the impeachment that was looming, or at least the uh, final vote on the impeachment that was looming. Uh, we have been told, however, that the president will speak to all of that tomorrow. So he is basking in the afterglow of the State of the Union address. Um, which has been reflected at uh, by his uh, numbers, which were very favorable for the president, and uh, will on Thursday comment on the end of a very long 84-day process and an attempt to impeach the president. Well, President Trump delivered his third State of the Union remarks last night, which can be read uh, online. Um, as in past years, he honored a remarkable range of guests in the gallery, most moving was the Tuskegee Airman Charles McGee, who just celebrated his 100th birthday and was uh, designated Brigadier General by the president earlier in the day. And Rush Limbaugh, the nation's most influential pathfinder on the radio, who announced this week he has stage four lung cancer, was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom as presented by the First Lady. Despite the fact that the president's remarks were about achievements, um, one could, uh, couldn't avoid the scowling face of Nancy Pelosi behind the podium, like her uh, legions on the floor, found little to applaud. It was a remarkable visual treatment to the fact that uh, she and uh, her party had nothing to offer but uh, dislike for Trump from the very beginning and certainly through this process of impeachment. It was a stark contrast in all of this. And based on comments that have been made since, there doesn't seem to be any sense in which this will end uh, with the acquittal of the president uh, earlier today. Uh, at least one of the uh, uh, House members whose name has just escaped me has indicated they are going to continue to investigate the president. They're going to subpoena John Bolton and uh, may consider articles of impeachment at some point in the future. I don't know if that is after the election during this interim period, um, but the investigating will continue, which covers uh, essentially all three years of the president's administration. If you count the Mueller investigation and the FISA uh, investigation as well. Well, President Trump went on the offensive against socialism and left-wing policies during his uh, third uh, address last night, drawing groans from the from the uh, Democrats. Asked about the um, the moment uh, by um, Fox News afterward, Pelosi said she had destroyed the speech, touring, uh, tearing it in half because it was the courteous thing to do. Uh, Speaker Pelosi just ripped up one of our last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, another went on to say. Senator Joe Manchin says that Trump's speech was uh, rough in parts, responding to Pelosi ripping up the speech. He added, none of that's good. And speaking to uh, Hannity, Senator Ted Cruz called Pelosi's actions disgraceful and disgusting, saying uh, they made him angry. Well, she was uh, greeted with a standing ovation among uh, her peers the next day. Some commentators accused her of hypocrisy, noting that back in 2009, she had called on a Republican congressman to apologize or face formal censure for shouting during President Obama's speech, his State of the Union, you lie. Well, in an apparent attempt at reconciliation, she tweeted late um, 
Tuesday that Democrats will never stop extending the hand of friendship to get the job done. Hashtag for the people. She also released a statement saying Trump did not issue a positive message on health care and calling his speech a manifesto of mistruths. Uh, The flame up um, was a harsh reminder of the partisan discord pervading in the halls of Congress, and that will continue even as the president in his speech all but ignored the historic impeachment drama that flanked this year's address, a fight virtually certain to end as it did in acquittal. The president opted in his remarks to publicly challenge Democrats on policy grounds while touting what he called the blue collar boom in the country. If you didn't have the opportunity to see or hear the speech, Uh, Regardless of your support or dislike of the president, it's always useful to hear what the chief executive has to say, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, You can find it in various places online. In a night of um, relatively high emotion, um, the president used that uh, address to tout the great American comeback during his first three years in office. Before the night was over, he had staged the surprise reunion of a soldier deployed to Afghanistan with his family and announced a scholarship for the daughter of a single mother. First Lady Melania Trump presented the uh, legendary talk radio host Rush Limbaugh with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and House Speaker Pelosi had ripped up a copy of the president's remarks. Well, the president delivered the address before a joint session of Congress, as is always the case. Uh, But some of the fact checks on key parts of the president's speech, which lasted about an hour and 18 minutes. We are restoring our nation's manufacturing might, even though predictions were that this could never be done. After losing 60,000 factories under the previous two administrations, America has now gained 12,000 new factories under my administration. Well, according to Pointner Institute PolitiFact in 2017, the United States has lost more than 60,000 factories since 2001. Trump made a similar claim in 2017, mentioned by PolitiFact laying the blame on China's uh, joining the World Trade Organization in 2001 for the decline in factories. The president said at a rally in Kentucky, since China joins, that's another beauty. The WTO in 2001, the U.S. has lost many more than 60,000 factories. Well, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, manufacturing establishments um, existed at 356,000 Uh, In the second quarter of last year, the most recent quarter available, in the first quarter of 2017, there were 343,972. That means there's now an additional 12,000 new factories. Uh, The president uh, did say that we have gained 12,000, and that was an accurate statement. Uh, I wish we had more time to go into more of that, but um, you can go to the Daily Signal uh, to look at some of the specific statements that were made to fact check. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with retired Judge Tom Cole. He's the founder of Paid in Full. We'll get a progress report. We'll also talk about a movie that's being made featuring, well, him, author of Losing Megan. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as many of you have uh, been following the saga of uh, a tremendous ministry that began under very painful circumstances, paid in full. I wanted to invite um, retired Judge Tom Cole to join us to give us a progress report and uh, to let us know some other developments that have uh, have come as a result, not just of paid in full in that ministry, but as a result of his response to the death of his daughter, which is now being made into a feature film. So we, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let me just say welcome, Judge Cole. Georgine, thank you for having me back again. It's, it's always fun to come back and be on your show with you. Well, I love to keep everyone up to date as to what's happening. This is such a massive project 
that Paid in Full has undertaken, it, it would be in the category of this is impossible, first of all, to get the approval for this to happen and then to find the resource to make it happen. So perhaps we need to begin at the beginning by explaining to listeners who may not be familiar with Paid in Full uh, how it began and what your vision has been. Yeah, so it, it began after I started visiting uh, prisons around the country, speaking about Jesus Christ and forgiveness. Uh, that happened as a result of my daughter's murder back on July 21st of 2006. God gave me the power to forgive the man who murdered her. Um, and so that opened the door. I wrote a book about it called Losing Megan, and that opened the door for me to visit prisons around the country. Eventually, I went down to a prison in Louisiana called Angola, and uh, Angola was very special. It used to be one of the bloodiest, most violent prisons in the United States, and it had become one of the safest maximum security prisons because the warden there, Burl Kane, had invited the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to come in and set up a four-year college degree program there. So eventually I went down to uh, visit Angola. I became friends with the warden. I went back several times. One night as we finished up a conversation in his office, uh, he said, uh, Hey, Judge, uh, would you please bow your head and close your eyes, and uh, I want to pray for you. And so when the warden of a maximum security prison tells you to bow your head and close your eyes, you do. And I did, and this was his prayer. He said, Dear Lord, don't let this man rest until they have a Bible college in the Oregon Department of Corrections. Amen. And, you know, I looked at him and I said, Warden, I thought we were friends. Why would you want me to have no rest until that ever happens, you know, until that happens? I said, it's not going to happen. I said, Oregon is one of the most unchurched states in the country. Uh, this is an impossible impossibility. And he looked at me and he said, Judge, who do we worship? And I said, mm. yes, the God of the impossible. And that was this, that was God speaking to me through Warden Cain, and that planted the seed in my heart to do what's been done. So, You know, it's interesting when um, when a crime has been committed against a loved one, I suppose you can understand an individual coming to the point where they have made the decision, I'm going to forgive that individual. You reconciled that in your heart to forgive the the man who killed your daughter. But this has grown into a ministry that is reaching out to incarcerated um, men all across the state, far beyond uh, what one would imagine is required after uh, having uh, such a tragedy occur. How do you explain this this desire in your heart to minister not just to the one, but to the many? Yeah, so when I was a judge, uh, I thought my job was to uh, put people in prison. And uh, it later turns out that not only was that my job, but God also wanted me to go minister to people that were put in prison. So so that kind of precipitated that event. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was just following, you know, one step at a time, getting up one day at a time, and waiting for God to kind of show me what he wanted me to, to do next. And so these programs, there are 16 other states that are doing this around the country now also. Uh, and then in uh, 2017, the summer of 2017, Baylor University uh, produced a uh, book that uh, documented how successful the program at Angola was and how successful the program at a, at a similar prison in Texas was. And so that gave the statistical uh, background and, and statistical, uh, you know, evidence that these programs worked. And so not only do you have the anecdotal aspect of these programs working, but you also have uh, statistics mm-hmm. that prove that these programs work. They reduce the assault uh, on inmate, assault on uh, staff violence. It improves the morale of the, of the prisons where they're located. And so, you know, all those different things combine to uh, 
allow me to come back to Oregon and meet with uh, Colette Peters, who's the director of the Oregon Department of Corrections. And I asked her if she'd be willing to take a look at uh, what happened in Angola and maybe apply that to Oregon. And I think she was very courageous and, you know, to step out and and say yes to something like that. And she did. And she's never, never backed down from that. She's been fully supportive of paid in full ever since that day. Well, I love hearing that it not only has an impact on recidivism, but it has an impact on the environment within the prison system. Uh, And one of the things I appreciate about what they've done in Angola and perhaps will do here as well is seeing those who are trained up with a seminary education then become missionaries, if you will, at other institutions around the country. Yeah, yeah, they do. And so so one of the stories I heard, not from Oregon, but from another state, was this. Uh, somebody was talking with one of the, the uh, corrections officers at a prison one day, and uh, they referred to the corrections officer as a guard. And he kind of looked at them, that person, sternly, and he said, I am not a guard. Guards protect something that's precious like gold or silver. Mm. Uh, and, and these people that, I'm, that are in this prison, these people are not precious. And so that was the attitude of that person in that prison. And so what, what's going to happen here in Oregon and what's already happened is the attitude, I think, of the corrections officers and the staff are going to see these men being transformed into uh, morally responsible people. And that's going to affect how they yeah. do their get up and go to work every day, how they do their jobs. And so it's going to have a, a huge effect on the staff within the Oregon State Prison System. And certainly their families as well. Well, where do we stand in Oregon? This had to have been a mammoth task to raise the resource to make this possible. Once you got permission that, yes, we're going to permit this in the Oregon State Prison System, that's only the first step. You had a tremendous task from that that point forward. Give us some understanding of what you were required to do in order to make this happen and where it stands now. Yeah, so I knew that we needed to start a nonprofit, and so I started one in 2017, and it's called uh, uh, Paid in Full Oregon. And um, in June of 2018, I had $2,000 in our checking account, and I was meeting with the Oregon officials, and one thing they told it, told me that we needed was uh, we need to hire an architect to draw up the plans to remodel some classroom space that they gave us. So they gave us 3,300 uh, square feet of classroom space at, space at the Oregon State Correctional Institution, which is just east of Salem as you're going towards Detroit Lake. So... We had to hire architects to draw up the plans uh, to remodel that classroom space. And so uh, the uh, number that was given me was $44,500 to hire the architects. And we had $2,000 in our account. (laughs) And that's just to hire the architects. Just to hire the architects so they could draw up the plans. And so within three weeks, God put that money in our account. We had over $50,000. And so I took a check down to the Department of Corrections for $44,500 and gave it to them. And it kind of, they kind of, it caught their attention, I think. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, so then they went out and hired the architect. They had a, they have to have all their money in an account before they do anything on mm-hmm. a project like this. Yeah. So they got that money. They hired the architects. The architects did the plans. Uh, they finished the plans in uh, 2019, which was this last year in the, in the, uh, the early part of the spring. And the plans were finished. Uh, they had to be sent out to uh, through the public work or through the public uh, site at, uh, at the DOC so that contractors could bid on those plans. 
the architects estimated that the total remount model was going to cost around $473,000. So, Considerably more than the forty-four you needed. <laughs> yeah, well, we needed the forty-four for the architects, <laughs> oh, and then, then to, to hire the general contractor <laughs> yeah. to come in and do the remodel was another $473,000. Yeah. And so... Um, it was the end of May of last year. We were $78,000 short. Uh, I was meeting, of course, I had gone around. I was starting to meet with people and apply for grants, and, and we were still $78,000 short of that number. And I met with a businessman in Portland who runs a very successful business, and he'll remain anonymous. But uh, we met for 45 minutes. He said, who should I make the check out to? And I mm-hmm. told him, and he made the check out to me, slid it across the table. I picked it up and looked at it. It was for $100,000. Oh. So so we were twenty plus $22,000 at that point. So then I gave that money to the state, and then they put the contract out for bid. The plans were sent out through their public website. And we only had two contractors bid on that project. Uh, the bid opening was July 23rd of last summer. And when we opened the bids on July 23rd, everybody's kind of excited to see what it was going to be. The the lowest responsible bid was $187,000 more than the $473,000. And we had two weeks to raise that money. And uh, within 10 days, God raised all the money that we needed. And I took another check down to the DOC. And they're just kind of shaking their heads like, what is going (laughs) on here? So... so, uh, we ended up giving them $684,500. That's the largest sum of money ever given to the Department of Corrections uh, in its history from a nonprofit organization like us. And so, I mean, it was just phenomenal that, that uh, God could raise all that money within the period of time that he needed to yeah. <laughs> that it needed yes. to be raised. <laughs> and, and so construction actually started then on October 7th last year. That's just incredible. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking with retired judge Tom Cole, paid in full. This is a progress report. We're also going to talk about a film company that's producing a film about forgiveness. All of that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio, we have retired Judge Tom Cole. Paid in full, we're getting a progress report. We'll also talk about a new feature film that's being made. Uh, really, the, is the testimony of Judge Cole. We'll get into that as well. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the fact that you were able to raise sufficient funds to provide the facility that had been made available to you uh, for the uh, for the college. Bring us from that point to the present. Yeah, so so the money was raised. Uh, the contract was awarded to a general contractor out of Silverton, and uh, they began construction on October 7th. It's still going on yet. Uh, the construction is expected to, the classroom is expected to be completed, I think, around the first or second week of March. In the meantime, though, the Department of Corrections really wanted us to begin the program, so they found a temporary classroom space for us and allowed Corbin University to come in and the men to begin uh, college classes on October 14th, one week after construction of the classroom began. So they're in a temporary classroom space. They, they had two courses last year. They are uh, uh, taking, they started January 8th of this year, uh, the 25 men in the cohort, and they have four courses that they're taking this year, regular college professors coming in and teaching each one of those courses. And the courses are Survey of Biblical Literature, uh, contemporary math. I don't know what that means. Contemporary <laughs> <laughs> math changes, maybe one plus one equals something else. Something so, else. Yeah. And uh, general psychology and college writing one. So 
Uh, all of those courses are being infused with biblical principles, teaching moral responsibility. And so that's what they're engaged in now. So they had a break between last fall and their winter start. And so the, the, uh, so at the, end, in the middle of December and we started January 8th. And so the men really had nothing to study. So they asked Corbin if they could have their textbooks early. And Corbin got them their textbooks early so that they could begin studying for their courses on January that started on January 8th. I remember when I was in college, I, or I, I would never ask for a textbook early. You're it was a good me. excuse not to study. I didn't have the textbook. Right, right. right. So they, they are like sponges. They're, they're just mm. really absorbing this. In fact, uh, uh, out of the 25, we have one Muslim, uh, one Jew, one Mormon, one atheist, and one uh, Native American spiritualist. Uh, there is going to be a baptism, I think, in a couple of weeks, uh, and the atheist is now doubting whether his disbelief in doubt or his dis- dis- disbelief in God is real or not. So he's more of an agnostic now. He's <laughs> probably more of an agnostic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's just exciting. Well, I remember the last email I, I received from you. You were looking for computers and desks and all of the stuff that would fill out a classroom. How has that part of the project moved forward? We were, because of, you know, the generous supporters of uh, Paid in Full, uh, we were able to go out and purchase uh, 28 computers. We, we had three extras in case of droppage or mm-hmm. uh, just repair or whatever. So the computers were purchased from a company in California that, in fact, makes those computers specifically for the prison environment. So they're computers that are specifically designed for the prison environment. They do not have USB ports. Uh, there would be no internet access for them, and uh, uh, they are actually clear, uh, so you can kind of see through them, and so so that prevents you know people from from you know wanting to put in, do something with the computers or put something in them. And so they're a really really neat computer. It's the first time in the Department of Corrections history they've allowed their men to have laptop computers, and so uh, the men are excited about that. We're going to have some programs downloaded on their computers, and I think they'll be distributed probably uh, around the, uh, the end of February, I think uh-huh. is the goal now, so where they get their computers. They're just doing it the old-fashioned way now, pen and pencil, or pen and paper. So, yeah. Oh, that is so exciting to, um, to think about the day that you were prayed over uh, and lost sleep <laughs> to yeah. the present. When this, uh, this uh, college is actually up and running, there are actual men who are being trained, there are college professors who are committed to providing that training. It's just um, an amazing thing to consider all that God has done to bring you to this point. Yeah, yeah. So these men are going to end up, so we have our first cohort, 25 men, and now we're going to be opening up the application process throughout the Oregon prison system to uh, take applications for for the next cohort, our second cohort. 25 men, and it's going to be open open to every uh, inmate in the Oregon prison system. Last year, we had about 188 men apply. This year, I think we're expecting over 300 men to apply because they see it's up yeah. and running now. Yeah. They didn't see that last year. So so it's going to be a hard process trying to whittle that down from, you know, that amount down to 25, 25 men. So Well, I just am rejoicing with so many others at, at all that has uh, been accomplished in such a very short period of time with so few resources. Yeah. It's just an amazing story. Now, moving forward, what do you see, what do you hope to see with this uh, this college in the Oregon State Prison System and perhaps elsewhere? Yeah, so the men are going to end up getting a Bachelor of Science degree in liberal arts with an emphasis in psychology, social services, and leadership. Uh, the DOC 
uh, has actually uh, come up with some some jobs for them to do when they get their degrees. So, so to be eligible to apply for the college, the men have to have at least eight years left in their sentence because mm-hmm. we want them when they get their degree in four years, we want them to give back and. And what they'll, how they'll be giving back is they'll be sent out after they get their degrees to the rest of the uh, prisons in the state of Oregon, probably in pairs of in twos, uh, and they will be mentors and counselors to their fellow. Uh, we call them adults in custody now, rather yes, than inmates. Yes, that's right. And uh, uh, they'll be they'll be used as mental health helpers. They'll be used as education tutors. They'll help with suicide watch. They'll help with gang renunciation. Some of them will be chaplain's assistants. And so this is the Department of Corrections coming up with these different jobs for them to do. And so, so they'll, they'll be required to give back for at least four years. Our ideal candidate is somebody who's a lifer. Uh, that's where we get the best return on our investment because that person is going to be in prison uh, for the rest of his earthly life ministering to his fellow, fellow adults in custody. Uh, so, just amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. Well, this all began when your daughter, Megan, was uh, was murdered. And I can't even imagine how painful that was for you. You're confronted with the death of your beautiful daughter uh, and the process of coming to a point of forgiveness um, led ultimately to all of what you've just described and and more. Talk a little bit about losing Megan and the now feature film that is in the offing. Yeah. So uh, just by circumstances, you know, got the got a, a godly coincidence. I ran into a, a film director producer uh, and he and I and his wife met uh, for a one morning. We spent some time together and I told him the story and uh, he and his wife were actually thinking that they had sold their house. They were on their way down to LA. He's already produced uh, two Christian movies and one secular movie. And they heard the story and they just felt God was, uh, asking them to do a movie on based upon the book. And so instead of going down to L.A., they they sold their house and they rented a house here, and they're going to stay in the Portland area until they finish the movie. Hmm. And so uh, I just talked with the producer, on, or the producer director on the phone today. Uh, he has been at Sun River working on the screen play, and we had, he had some questions. And so he and I are getting together in the next couple of days to talk a little bit about the questions he has. And... Uh, they just feel compelled to 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 do this uh, uh, movie on on the book Losing Megan to do a feature film, ninety minutes to two hours. Not quite sure. The budget originally was a million dollars, and now it's two million dollars. And he'll be looking for investors on that. Uh, so they are they are really. His name is Brett Eichenberger. His wife is uh, Jill Remstad, or and and uh, they are Jill's a, a, a screenwriter also. So they're working on that now. Just amazing. And really the theme of the film will be forgiveness, the power of forgiveness. Yes. And uh, your faith walk that led you to the ability to forgive in such a profound and meaningful way that not only impacted the individual responsible for your daughter's death, but so many others as a result. Yeah, yeah. So, and I I mispronounced Jill's last name. It's Jill Remensnyder. And yeah, so... So it's it's not only that the forgiveness, but it's going to show I I believe how God can take a tragedy and turn it into a triumph. And mm-hmm. you know, you take a look at the ultimate ironical thing that can come out of this. You know, sort of a godly irony. I, irony uh, is this that the man who murdered my daughter, who's spending the rest of his life in prison, could end up going to college in prison. Why? Because he murdered my daughter. Hmm. That, 
only only God could come up with 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 yeah. with a st- story like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, the film will be titled "Losing Megan." It will certainly keep up to date on the progress on that. Judge Cole, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for talking with us today. Thank you for so having me again. Look I... forward to next time. Okay, thanks. Okay. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Just had a great conversation with uh, retired judge Tom Cole. And one thing I meant to mention and didn't was that they're in their next uh, funding cycle. And uh, I would encourage you to go to the website, find out um, their campaign for this year to to fund the uh, the projects that they're involved in. You can check that out at their website, paidinfull.org. Um, but this is a, a ministry that God has blessed greatly. And if you'd like to be a part of that ongoing uh, process, then... Check out their website, paidinfull.org. Also, I understand uh, Judge Cole's going to be the speaker at the Good Friday uh, breakfast this year. Great speaker, tremendous story. So make plans now to invite uh, your friends, your coworkers, loved ones, whomever. It's going to be a great morning. Well, in this hour of today's program, we're going to talk with Jason Williams. He is executive director of um, Taxpayer Association of Oregon. We'll talk about the no carbon tax campaign that's ongoing now that the legislature is in its uh, first week of the 35-day legislative session. The cap and trade is what it's being called, but it's actually a carbon tax. So we'll get into all of that. Also going to talk with Tara Matson. She uh, is the author of Courageous, Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. And we'll talk certainly about uh, the book, but also a conference that she and uh, close friends are uh, hosting at uh, Rolling Hills Community Church in March, the 13th and 14th. It's the Encourage Gathering, and that's I Encourage Gathering. Um, we'll talk more with her about that in our next segment. I'm looking for my my notes here. Well, this has been quite a week. It's only Wednesday, and it's been uh, quite an historic and full uh, week. As you know, we had the Iowa caucuses, which are still we're still kind of having with the results uh, not fully confirmed at 100 uh, percent. We've had the um, closing arguments in the president's impeachment trial and then senators who were each given an opportunity, 10 minutes uh, to speak to what uh, they heard and their response to it all. And then the State of the Union address yesterday, uh, we had uh, today the final vote in the Senate voting against convicting the president on the two articles of impeachment brought by the House and defended by the House managers. Uh, the president has now officially been acquitted. Sadly, however, the investigations will continue as announcements were made that there'll be efforts to subpoena John Bolton and other investigations moving forward. So uh, if there was a hope of mending the the wounds and the great divide, that's not likely to be the case anytime soon. And of course, with Monday's Iowa caucuses, even though they were not completed smoothly, that is the official beginning of the campaign season. So it's going to be a pretty rough few months. It's a good time to be praying for uh, the country, for wisdom, as we'll have opportunity on uh, several occasions in the primary and the general election to cast what we hope to be informed, wise ballots, and how we can engage our neighbor who may have vastly different views um, in this politically charged environment. So while it can be a bit of a challenge, it also presents something of an opportunity for us to extend the love of Christ, even in the way we communicate and um, carry ourselves during this challenging season. 
Well, back at uh, the news last week, um, brought news that the former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page has filed suit in federal court against Perkins Coy, the Democratic National Committee law firm, and a number of others responsible for catalyzing the FBI's unconstitutional um, uh, investigation against Page. Uh, recall that justification for the surveillance warrant executed against him was based on the now infamous Steele dossier. So in light of everything else that's going on, this is ongoing. Alluding to the Steele dossier, the lawsuit states that the defendants used false information, misrepresentations, and other misconduct to direct the power of the international intelligence apparatus and the media industry uh, against Page to further their political agenda. The suit further alleges defendants leveraged these fabrications within the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice, leading these agencies to present false applications to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, yep, that's all um, all in the lawsuit. Well, his attorney, this is Carter Page's attorney, stated that this initial suit is merely the first of multiple actions in the wake of the historic Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act abuse and that it is say, a first step to ensure that the full extent of the FISA abuse that has occurred during the last few years is exposed and remedied. Page attorney John Pierce further explained that defendants and those they worked with inside the federal government did not and will not succeed in making America a surveillance state. This is only the first salvo. We will follow the evidence wherever it leads, no matter how high. And of course, there's a congressional investigation as well. I believe it's being generated out of the Senate into this whole process as well. Well, setting aside uh, for the moment the question of whether Page has a uh, hope of uh, succeeding in, in court against those infesting the uh, uh, investigating him at that time, it's a valiant attempt nonetheless to hold someone accountable. The battle will most certainly be uphill. For instance, um, the appointment of the former Obama-era Justice Department official David Chris uh, to clean up these matters uh, by the, uh, the FISA court their new presiding judge, James Bosberg, uh, the Reader's Digest version of that report, Chris, um, is not likely to go very deep in this investigation. And as House Intelligence uh, Ranking Committee member Devin Nunez summarized, the FBI lied to the FISA court. And to help make sure that doesn't happen again, the FISA court chose an FBI apologist uh, to deny and defend what has already happened. So not very hopeful. Meanwhile, FBI Director Christopher Wray, he's testified uh, today that the actions taken by the Bureau to obtain a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant against former Trump campaign aide Carter Page, who's now filed suit, were unacceptable and cannot be repeated. During his first congressional appearance following the release of the Justice Department Inspector General report, it was a review last year, Ray vowed to reform the FISA system by implementing specific procedures and safeguards. The failures highlighted in the Inspector General report are unacceptable, period, and they cannot be repeated. He testified before the House Judiciary Committee. I have already ordered more than 40 corrective actions to our FISA policies and procedures, he continued adding that he has gone above and beyond in outlining what should be changed and can be changed and can provide accountability, rigor, and discipline. I do not think anyone has carte blanche to bypass rules, and I intend to make it painfully clear that is unacceptable at the FBI today. Meanwhile, Republicans on that same committee used to the hearing on uh, uh, Wednesday as an opportunity to further grill Ray and the FBI. I don't trust your agency anymore. That's a quote from Representative Tom McClintock, a Republican out of California, adding that the FBI has lost the trust of an awful lot of Americans. Representative Jim Jordan suggested that uh, Ray was not taking the misconduct outlined in the inspector general's report seriously. 
I'm concerned you're not taking this seriously enough. Are you taking this seriously enough, Director Ray? Well, the FBI director underscored that activities surrounding the FISA during the 2016 presidential election were unacceptable and uh, unrepresentative of who we are as an institution. Political bias has no place in today's FBI. Well, Ray's testimony comes after the December 9th release of the Horowitz report, the inspector general Uh, which found specific evidence of oversights and errors by several top FBI employees as they tried to obtain a warrant to surveil Carter Page under the FISA statute. Well, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, they've ordered an inquiry into a slew of FBI surveillance abuses over the past several years, but they've stopped short of requiring the FBI to re-verify several uh, potentially impacted warrant applications. The presiding judge said in a recent letter exclusively Obtained that the court anticipates additional rulings will be forthcoming. So we'll see what happens in the midst of all of that. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, Tara Matson. She's the author of Courageous, Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. The book is published by Cook. But we're also going to talk about an event coming up on the 13th and 14th of March at Rolling Hills Community Church, Encourage Gathering. And that's spelled with an I, Encourage Gathering. Let's talk about it. Um, at Rolling Hills. You can uh, check it out on the website, encouragegathering.com, keeping in mind that encourage is spelled with an I. We'll be back with Tara Matson and Jason Williams later in the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I am so excited. Um, there's a conference coming to the Portland area I want to tell you about, but I also want to introduce you, those of you who may not yet know, to my next guest who is doing some significant things right here in our community. She's recently authored the book Courageous, Being Daughters Rooted in Grace, and she points out that daughters of every age are navigating a world of hypersexualization, social media hangover, and extreme loneliness. And whether you're longing to find a greater sense of purpose or are raising a daughter who's beginning her own journey, Courageous, the book, will lead you and those you love through a transformation as you experience um, Christ's love and his work in your life. Uh, Courageous is the book that she has authored, but there's also a conference I want to make sure you know about, and uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. My guest is Tara Matson. She is um, uh, she and her husband, I should say, are raising their two daughters just outside of the Portland area. They're the founders of Courageous Girls and the counseling and organizational development firm Living Wholehearted. Tara is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has helped thousands of women at every stage of the journey over the past two decades. Uh, I wanted to invite her to talk about the book and make sure you you are aware of it, but also to talk about the conference that's coming up, to which you are cordially invited. Tara Matson, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Georgine. You know, our conversation today is uh, relatively short, so I want to invite you back to talk at greater length about your book. But uh, just for the sake of uh, our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, tell us a little bit about Courageous Being Daughters Rooted in Grace and the challenge we face in the 21st century trying to reflect what God intends for us amidst all the challenges. Absolutely. There are just so many voices within the church and outside the church. And uh, just from years of sitting in the counseling office, working with parents and their children and teens, or working with women within the context of their marriages or their journey in singleness, uh, it's just been a battle. You know, often what we're hiding uh, behind masks and Hmm. presenting to the world around us isn't always what's happening on the inside. And so I have had the honor and privilege of walking in those deeper trenches with women and just recognizing that we are just so confused. We're just so confused. 
And we all believe maybe God loves us in our head, but haven't really understood how that translates into our daily lives. We feel really isolated. And uh, most of us are glued to our phones in the digital age. And so we're getting just a lot of confusing messages that are inundating our lives. So I just, as a mom of daughters and longing for models for them, and then also just recognizing the struggle it is um, as moms to be a model for our girls, um, I was just passionate about maybe speaking into the things that the church is facing right now. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm looking forward to talking at greater length about some of the things that you've done with regard to your own daughters and uh, getting together with other mothers to better understand those challenges and to seek God in raising uh, daughters. But I also want to talk to you about the conference that's coming up in March, Encourage 2020. Um, this is a an opportunity for women to come together. And this is a, a very different kind of conference that I think many of us are used to. Your goal is to help women do precisely what you mentioned a moment ago, shed those masks that we're all encouraged to wear and to deepen our courage to embrace um, God who's, so that we can be the women that he says we are. Talk a little bit about Encourage and what makes this conference unique? Oh, I'm so excited because really we're trying to create a safe space, um, a place of grace to just say, hey, what if we weren't trying so hard and striving so hard to be what we think God wants us to be and actually just let God love us right where we are and let him do the work in transforming our lives. And what that means is we've got to start with a place of honesty, uh, being able to actually recognize, name where we're at. Um, if that's I'm struggling with depression, uh, I'm struggling with my marriage, help me, I've got a teenager and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Um, so the other piece as a clinician, I've just been passionate about uh, how God's word really does apply to our daily lives and using um, the wisdom of neuroscience and trauma-informed treatment. There's just so much wisdom that we can bring to the table um, in our parenting and in our lives as women. So we've got 40 breakout speakers. They're all experts in their field, whether it's uh, the Bible, uh, parenting, their counselors. And we're going to just talk about the issues that we rarely talk about in the church. And we want to do it in a place where it just normalizes it and says we're actually all in the same boat. Yeah. And we need to stop judging ourselves and other people. Yeah, which is so easy to do in our compare ourselves with others kind of culture. Now, I'm really impressed by the depth of a teaching that's available. You mentioned 40 phenomenal breakout speakers that are at the top of their field. And people can go to the website. We'll give them information about that in a few moments to find out more. I know you're going to be one of the keynote speakers, and that's worth the price of admission right there. But Kathy (laughs) Kathy Town and Catherine Wolf will also um, be speaking. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. So Catherine Wolf, for anyone who doesn't know her, she and her husband started an organization and I wrote a book called Hope Heals and have a book coming out called Suffer, uh, Suffering Strong. And she is going to talk about how to live with courage with the story you've been given instead of always waiting for that fairy tale or mm. when something happens in the future, expecting healing, but actually how to live right here and now with the story. And she is coming from a tragedy to really a phenomenal um, story of courage. So I'm so excited to have her. She's a national speaker, speaks all over the place. So I'm, we're honored to be able to have her. And then Kathy Town is going to be speaking on identity. And she, um, as a, 
she's a senior pastor's wife and has been in ministry for 40 years, but she also started an organization called Divine Threads, helping disadvantaged women and coming as a kind of what she would say, a legalistic, judgmental Christian to a place of finding grace for her own journey and her own story and then being able to walk alongside others who really have struggled as well. seems to me this conference really is about freedom, freedom to let go of the things that we think we have to hold on to to present a particular image and to experience the joy of walking in grace and uh, being who God created us to be. Encourage 2020 is coming up March the 13th and 14th at Rolling Hills Community Church. Uh, I want to encourage you to check this out. You you know, there are opportunities for women to come together. This is a very unique opportunity uh, for women and to have access to the caliber of speakers that are going to be presenting both from the uh, the platform as keynote speakers and the breakout sessions. I've I've checked this out. So I'm I'm advising you based on what I've uh, what I've learned. I really want to encourage you to, to look into attending this event, the 13th and 14th. It's going to provide some depth and opportunity. Um, that is rare, and I think we really need in our community. You can go to EncourageGathering.com, and that's spelled with an I, in I-N, CourageGathering.com. You can register. You can find out more about, uh, about the conference, and uh, I hope you will do just that. Um, Tara, why do you think it's important for women, for us to come together around God's Word and to hear from others who have struggled in perhaps ways we have, those who have developed specialties that can help inform us uh, to deal with the challenges that we face? Why is it important for us to come together? Well, two reasons come to mind. The first is it is so profound when we start to hear other people be honest about their stories and we start to go, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. And you mean God can meet me here too. So often we only let him into certain parts of our lives and we keep the others behind closed doors. So just that sense of I'm not alone. The second piece is with having all the experts coming together, we're just saying, here's the how-to's. We're wanting to provide resources and not just get excited about living with courage, but here's a how-to and being a catalyst, uh, maybe a shift for some change, both in your internal life as well as in your relationships and hopefully extended beyond the conference. And I should mention there's going to be opportunity for worship as well. I so appreciate those Selah moments when we have an opportunity Mm. to kind of digest what we just uh, received and just thank God in worship and a wonderful worship leader and team. Uh, that's going to be there as well. This is going to be a significant event in our community. And again, if you uh, want to check that out and get more information, go to EncourageGathering.com, and that's spelled with an I, I EncourageGathering.com for more information. Well, uh, I'm so grateful for the gift that you are to our community in general, and certainly with this conference as well. And I look forward to you and I having uh, more time to talk about your book, which I would also recommend, Courageous, Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Tara Matson. Right here from our community. Courageous Being Daughters Rooted in Grace is her book and the conference Encourage Gathering. And you can find that at EncourageGathering.com, spelled with an I. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jason Williams, Executive Director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. We're going to talk about the no carbon tax campaign, referring to cap and trade. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, the Oregon legislature is back in session. And for the next $35, let me encourage you to hold fast to your wallet. 
Well, one of the issues that is expected to come up this time around is the um, cap and trade that failed to pass the legislature last time around. Well, there is a campaign, the no carbon tax statewide fight to prevent this from becoming law in the state of Oregon during the short session where there's very little opportunity for Oregonians to weigh in and under the guise of an emergency, which means you can't really do anything about it if it successfully passes. You might recall last time around, Republicans actually walked out. Well, here to talk with us about this effort to draw attention to what this carbon tax is really all about, and it is a tax, is Jason Williams. He's executive director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. Jason, appreciate your being with us today. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm glad to be here because this is a huge tax, and they're going to be debating in February just for a few weeks. The politicians could be in the Capitol, and this tax may come and go, and if it passes, it's going to be huge. Now, before we get into the details, I want to talk about the mechanism they're using to bring this up and to prevent voters from having an opportunity to respond in any tangible way uh, after it successfully passes, if in fact it does. They are uh, passing this with an emergency clause. Can you explain that and why it's really important for us to respond now and not wait to see what happens? Yes. uh, Most bills, when you pass a law, it goes into an effect in 90 days after the governor signs it. But if you you just simply say this law is an emergency, it goes into effect immediately. The effect of that is is that usually uh, if the politicians pass a law you don't like, the people can launch a referendum petition drive to say, hey, let's vote on this. And they've got 90 days to gather signatures to put it on the ballot. It's been done before that once one time the politicians passed a near billion dollar tax increase, uh, and I and my friends we did a petition and we, we in 90 days got enough signatures and brought it to the voters for a vote. Voters said no, but if you declare an emergency, all you have to do is just put in the bill. This is an emergency. Then the bill goes into effect immediately, and there is no time to gather signatures for a repeal drive. You then will have to go spend two years trying to get signatures and bring it to the ballot for a vote as opposed to 90 days. So you're basically, by simply declaring this bill as an emergency, you're basically saying voters should not be able to put this on the ballot and we're going to block them from doing it. Mm. Well, we're hearing it referred to as cap and trade, and that's a relatively innocuous set of words. But what we're actually talking about is a carbon tax. Explain what a carbon tax is and why we Oregonians who are taxpayers should be concerned about it. Yes. A carbon tax is basically they they set a certain emission levels and any business that emits over that, they get taxed. And this tax is going to raise $700 million as much. Um, and when they do that, and they've done it like in California, and what it did is it raised gas prices and it raised utility prices. California has had uh, the most expensive gas in the country. Uh, They saw the utility rates go up 30% because you are taxing like, um, you know, you're you're taxing emission companies as they deal with, in this case, in Oregon, natural gas. You will see that go up. It's expected to go up 13% for a home and as much as 53% for a business if you have natural gas. And for gas prices, uh, they're predicting anywhere from 22 to 72 cents in the short term. Um, so it's like a gas tax. It's going to increase gas prices as much as 72 cents. And 
after about two about two decades, it's it, it's expected to raise gas prices by about three dollars. So it's kind of a three dollar effective gas tax. Um, so yeah, when you start uh, putting a tax on uh, energy sources, uh, we pay for that at the at the gas pump and with our natural gas utility bill. Not to mention at the grocery store because things have to be brought from wherever they're grown to the grocery store. So everything we would normally purchase is going to be higher too because they're going to be covering the cost of that uh, that gas tax. Now politicians admit that this is a, a bill that's going to hurt the poor. So they've admitted that. We've seen that in California. Their solution then is to create um, a, a rebate uh, for the poor with the notion that this is somehow going to balance things out, which couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, that's that's something that they put in the provision of the bill last time. We're, not, we're still reading through the language of this year's version, but they actually had a kind of um, a tax rebate if you're poor, and it was basically saying, yeah, we know if you're in rural Oregon and gas prices go up and the cost of living goes up, it's going to hurt you, so take a little bit off your taxes. Uh, sorry you lost your job. Sorry you can't afford Christmas. Take a little off your taxes. Make you feel good. Uh, under one version, even before that one, they actually had like a, a fund you could tap into if you lost your job because of the carbon tax because they knew it was going to cause people to lose their jobs. And it's like, yeah, go collect a check You know, if you lost your job. I'm kind of speaking in this, of course, in kind of um, crude terms, but these were some of the part of the debates they were having, and that is, yeah, you cannot raise gas prices and utility prices without raising the cost of food and pharmacy and clothing, and that's what happened in California. Prices went up, and and I tell you, California, (laughs) under one measure, they got rated the number one poverty state in America, and for the first time in 100 years, First time in 100 years, more people are leaving California than going in because they can't afford to be there. Carbon tax played a big role in that. Of course, they're doing all kinds of other environmental things, and taxes just drives up the the cost of of living, um, and that makes it uh, very unlivable. But, yeah, this tax is going to hit. It's going to hit you very hard, and so this is why – Last year, the Republican senators, they walked out, and they were mad because the voters could not have a say on the ballot, and that's part of the emergency clause. If this thing is so important, pass it and let voters decide if they want to take this to the ballot and uh, and vote on it, because I think voters would like to say, yeah, let's have a say. Well, this certainly is an exercise in social engineering as well as a, a means for the state to have a slush fund. But politicians are, in addition to referring to this as an emergency, are are being disingenuous by calling this cap and trade um, and not a tax. And there's a reason for that. Uh, The threshold for passing this in the legislature is impacted by the way it's uh, it's characterized as well. Yeah, you um, voters said a long time ago, if you're going to pass a tax, you better get a 60 percent vote, you know, because taxes are so destructive, so painful uh, on people. So they put it in the Constitution. You try to pass a gas tax or a, you know, income tax, you got to get 60% vote. The politicians got to get a 60% vote. So knowing that, it's very difficult to get a 60% vote. And so with this carbon tax, they decided to say, well, it's not really a tax. It's just a cap and trade. We set this cap about how much this business can emit. If they exceed that cap, then they must trade for the rights to uh, continue 
and they trade, basically you have to pay a pay into this fund and then the fund tells you, okay, now you can continue to continue your business in your emission levels. It's a, it's a cap and trade. We cap emissions. If you exceed it, you then trade your money for the approval from the state to continue doing it. Therefore, there is no tax. But somehow this thing raises as much as $700 million, and it's like, that's crazy. It is a tax. If you're if you're telling someone you can't drive a car unless you you know you pay a two hundred dollar tax, uh, you know you give me got to give the government two hundred dollars. Well, that's a tax. It's just because they changed the name of it. And yes, so not only does it disguise the tax, but it allows them to avoid that sixty percent constitutional threshold for all taxes, and they could pass it with fifty percent plus one. Um, so that means almost all the other taxes, you got to get that higher vote. This one would be a tax that they would vote with fewer votes than virtually all the other taxes, and they're just changing the names of taxes, and it's it's really it's really disgraceful um, what's happening down there. And there's all kinds of other schemes that they have to avoid taxes, and it it makes our process very dishonest. Mm-hmm. And I just hope we can kill this thing. They're they're rushing it through this one month session. Because they know during this one-month session, people aren't—they're not reading about it. It goes very quickly. There's few public hearings. There's little notice. That's when they love to do it, so they can just take this near billion-dollar tax, sweep it through, call it an emergency, so you can't have a say in it, and then bing you're going to be hit with a big tax bill. Well, before we run out of time, I want to talk about what we can do about it. The legislature hasn't cast a vote yet. The debate hasn't begun yet. But there is a no-carbon tax statewide fight. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to invite you to tell us what can we do to let the legislature know uh, our thoughts on this uh, this whole thing. So we'll be back in just a moment. Again, we're talking this afternoon with uh, Jason Williams, Executive Director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. The no carbon tax campaign, that's the subject of our conversation. As the legislature is in session, that began on Monday and for 35 days, huh, they're going to be making decisions about um, your standard of living. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the Oregon legislature that is currently in session. And one of the big issues they're anticipating uh, taking up this time around is the carbon tax. Now, they call it cap and trade, but carbon tax is a more honest way of describing what they are debating and would like to impose on Oregonians, uh, taxpayers and businesses in the state. The impact this is uh, going to have on the standard of living of Oregonians, particularly when it comes to uh, to oil and gas, but also on businesses is rather staggering. I have Jason Williams with me. He is executive director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. Now, we're frustrated by uh, the details of what's being considered. Uh, let's talk now about what can be done about it, because it's one thing to find out what the legislature's doing. It's another to actually respond in a way that might resonate and prevent uh, this reckless move from uh, from succeeding. Yes, well, I do want to let you know on uh, February 6th, tomorrow, Thursday, there's going to be Timber Unities doing a massive statewide rally. When they've done rallies at the Capitol last year, thousands of people showed up, some of the biggest rallies ever. So if you're going to ever go, this would be the one to go to. They're going to be doing that. Uh, I think it's going to be all day, but usually around from like, Nine to noon is when a lot of the big speaking and a lot of the big things happen. 
So there is a huge rally. Uh, we're also encouraging people you could just go, make sure to call your lawmaker and uh, your senator and representative. And if you don't know, you can go to OregonLegislature.gov and you can see a toll-free number you could call into. You can you can type in your address to find out who your lawmaker is. But um, do this. Make your voice heard. I'm encouraging people to put out signs. Um, you know, just spread things on uh, social media. We've got all kinds of stuff on OregonCatalyst.com where you can Facebook like. Uh, and that really spreads like wildfire uh, on Facebook. So do that. Your voice matters. This thing was killed last year, and it was killed the year before. And if we kill it this February, there's going to be an election in November, and there's a chance these, these supporters are going to be swept out of power. And we won't have to worry about this tax. Um, but if they, if they ram it through in February, mm, well, then get, get ready to... Uh, get ready to make a lot of sacrifices at the gasoline pump and at the grocery store, um, and it's 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 all it's all not worth the pain because Oregon is it, it I think we're like the twelfth uh, cleanest CO2 state. We're yeah, very clean. That's right. So the difference we're making is not very big compared to the other states that have a bigger uh, carbon footprint. So we need to. Um, to do something where the pain matches the gain and not just make our lives miserable. And one of the things that they found out is that when you, when you put in a lot of these draconian environmental regulations, manufacturers will just go across the state border and just move their plant there. So you're not really saving any emissions in the country when you just push them out of Oregon and they go to another state and they take their jobs and their tax revenue with them. I would rather take the tax revenue from the businesses here and use that that existing tax revenue to to make their you know to make their businesses more cleaner to do things that would actually make a bigger difference. But they don't even know what they want to spend the seven hundred million. Yeah, it's kind of a slush on. fund. Yeah. 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 Well, a couple of things listeners need to, to be reminded of. You can go to OregonCatalyst.com for more information about all of this. And if you're interested in the rally tomorrow, and I hope you, uh, if you're free, you make the effort to, to go. That's tomorrow at 10 a.m. at the Salem uh, State Capitol Steps. And you can go to TimberUnity.com for more details uh, and updates. TimberUnity.com. Uh, this is an important issue. It's going to have a major impact on uh, Oregonians' um, a personal economy, if you will. And I so appreciate that Taxpayer Association of Oregon is helping to educate Oregonians and to mobilize uh, so that lawmakers know we're not just going to sit uh, sit by and watch yeah. them mischaracterize this issue and then call it an emergency in order to prevent Oregonians from weighing in. Yes, yes. And I tell you, man, making those phone calls, it works. Yeah, it absolutely. Works. Absolutely. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for all that you do and for talking with us today. You're welcome. Really appreciate it. Again, uh, Jason Williams, Executive Director of Taxpayer Association of Oregon. Hmm. Uh, Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Catherine James. She's uh, a heartbroken mother. Her book is titled A Prayer for Orion, A Son's Addiction and a Mother's Love. Some of you know what that pain feels like. She has written a book on the subject, and we'll talk with her about that. And then on Friday, uh, we're planning on taking a look at the lighter side of the news, so I always look forward uh, to that. One thing I want to mention before we wrap things up here, a Chinese pastor who's living in Wuhan, China, that's the epicenter of the deadly coronavirus uh, outbreak. He has penned a powerful letter that's urging the international community 
uh, where uh, to lift up his community, the church that's trying to help minister in that area, to lift them up in prayer. There are um, a significant number of cases in that uh, in that area. The Christian leader identified as a Wuhan pastor. Uh, penned a lengthy letter in which he revealed that fellow pastors from the area are asking how they can uh, support. It's uh, readily apparent that we are facing a test of our faith, the pastor wrote. The situation is so critical, yet we are trusting in the Lord's um, uh, providence for peace and that uh, good and not evil would result. He quoted Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, uh, saying that he allows for a time of testing not to destroy us, but to establish us. So he's asking that we would pray certainly for those who have been stricken, but for the church, that it would be strengthened through this um, this season. The pastor emphasized that while Christ has uh, given us peace, that peace is not uh, to remove us from disaster and death, but rather to have uh, peace in him because Jesus has already overcome these things. When disaster strikes, it is uh, but a form of God's love, he contended, spoken for today. He uh, he said the pestilence there cannot separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And he urged the international community to pray for God's mercy upon the city and to bring peace upon uh, the city through the prayers and service of those uh, who live there and from those who live abroad. So uh, if you'd like to respond to that pastor's uh, cry for uh, for help um, from the body of Christ abroad, uh, this pastor from Wuhan has asked that we would pray that the church would be strengthened and able to stand and support their neighbors, but also that they would grow in their faith through this very difficult time. So I wanted to mention that. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Once again tomorrow, Catherine James, a prayer for Orion, a son's addiction and a mother's love. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in about, what, 22 hours. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.